Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm Director of ECFR and I'm thrilled to be talking to you this week about the United Nations. At the stroke of midnight on the 31st of December, the current Secretary General of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon, will end his term of office and a new Secretary General will start. And the world is awash with speculation about who that will be. This week, for the first time in the 70-year history of the United Nations, their declared candidates will take part in a public hustings. This is a radical departure for the United Nations, which prefers to choose its Secretaries General in backroom deals after preferably smoke-filled ones. And uh, it also comes to an organisation which has been much attacked by NGOs because there is, as yet, I think, still no job description for the role, no comprehensive selection criteria, no proper timetable. There's not traditionally been much uh, public scrutiny of any of the candidates. The Security Council shortlist typically contains a single name, and no woman has ever held this post either. And uh, we know that that will be one of the two big criteria which is guiding the process from now onwards, the testicular test, as it's been called by the media, and the geographical test. I'm joined by three experts to help us make sense of this process. Samini Sengupta, who's the United Nations correspondent for The New York Times. Richard Gowan, who is a senior policy fellow at ECFR based in New York, who has written a lot about the, the UN and, and this uh, uh, l- lengthy process. And Manuel Lafont-Habnoui from our Paris office, uh, also a senior policy fellow at ECFR, but one who has had experience of working on UN issues within the French government as well, when he was the assistant director general of the International Organizations Department. Uh, Samini. Sitting in New York, you've been in a lot of the the hearings. Can you tell us uh, where we are? Yes, so this is the kickoff of the official campaign season. This week, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, uh, we have had nine of the candidates, all of the declared candidates, appearing before the broader membership of the General Assembly for the first time uh, in the history of the UN making their pitches for why they want to be secretary general and taking a whole host of questions uh, from all kinds of countries, uh, coming out and answering a few questions from the press. Uh, and this has uh, this has gone on for, for three days. We're almost at the end of it uh, uh, Thursday afternoon. I expect, uh, I expect that there'll be another round of this in another month or so when other candidates declare themselves. And then, of course, we will get uh, some inklings from the Security Council in the summer. Um, and then ultimately the, the decision, of course, will be made principally by the permanent five members. So tell us a bit about who the runners and riders are. So I think so far, five of the nine come from the former Yugoslavia. So um, they are very well represented. Um, three of the nine have been heads of state and government. Um Helen Clark, Antonio Gutierrez, uh, and Danilo Turk. Um, I believe, if I've got this right, four of the nine are women. Uh, Equally interesting, 
all of them, uh, all of the men, have had to say something about gender parity, and some of them have made quite explicit promises, uh, such as Antonio Guterres. He has said he will create a roadmap for gender parity, uh, uh, not gender parity from day one, but a roadmap for gender parity. Uh, so I, I think the, the question of representation, um, gender representation, is really front and center this year. And Richard, you're a European also living in New York. How much of uh, this is about uh, geographical representation? Because we heard uh, Europe lots of Eastern Europeans saying that it's, uh, it's Eastern Europe's chance, which might explain the, the prevalence of, of Yugoslavians um, in the shortlist um, for, the, for these um, uh, hearings. But there are some visibly non-Europeans there as well, like Helen Clark. Well, this arises from a UN tradition that big jobs should be passed between regions. And Eastern Europe has never had a secretary general. And so a lot of Eastern Europeans really do feel that this is their turn. But this is politically contentious because a lot of observers, including observers in Washington, worry that any Eastern European politician might be open to excessive pressure from Russia. And Moscow has made it very clear that it wants someone uh, essentially from uh, a former Warsaw Pact country or, or the former Yugoslavia. And there's a sense that after a period in which uh, Russia has been playing pretty tough political games at the UN, it's playing another game, which is to get uh, a candidate for Secretary General, who will be uh, less instinctively pro-Western and more pro-Russian. Right. So, Manuel, um, you've um, been following this from, from Paris, have been involved in lots of UN processes over the years. T to what extent does the hearings process actually changed the the way that the ultimate decision is going to be made? Well, as Somini said, it doesn't change that much in the sense that at the end, the formal process wants the UN Security Council to design candidates and the UN General Assembly to have the final vote. But the way the UN Security Council has proceeded so far is that it suggests only one name, and the UN General Assembly always acclaimed that name and never challenged the, the recommendation by the Security Council. And in the Security Council, the permanent five um, members, namely the US, Russia, China, the UK and France, have never refrained from using their veto or the threat of their veto to uh, make sure that the candidates that will be recommended to the General Assembly is palatable to them. Um, so this does change a little bit in terms of transparency and openness of what are the, the issues and uh, who really are the contenders. But in terms of the decision-making process, it's still the same as it was before. I think that's that's absolutely correct. I do think that these hearings complicate the process a little bit because um, if the broader membership says at the end of this process, hey, we really thought that these were some of the standout candidates, um, and then the Security Council comes and recommends 
someone completely different, um, I, you know, I think it's a, that will be a bit difficult. That will present a challenge. So, of course, this is the council responding to a call for a bit more transparency, um, but certainly not the council giving up any of its authority. So based on what you've seen for the last few days, Samini, have any of these nine candidates already crashed and burned? Um, I wouldn't say that any of them have necessarily crashed and burned. I think that uh, some of them have clearly shown that they are not ready to answer certain kinds of questions. Irina Bokova, for example, was asked by the British ambassador, which UN agencies, um, I think he said, would you eliminate or combine or something like that? And she simply didn't answer. She didn't just diplomatically dance around it, as uh, as many have around many of the questions, but she simply didn't answer. Um, similarly, uh, this morning, Vuk Yeremich uh, was asked about the, the gender parity question, and he you know, said he values gender parity and he said that he would appoint, quote, a lady as his deputy secretary general and perhaps she would even have more experience than him, which raised the question, then why shouldn't she be the secretary general (laughs) but be his deputy? (laughs) Okay. And are there any other candidates in the wings who we expect to to come in in the next wave, Richard? And maybe um, one of you could also explain when the... Deadline when the cutoff date appears because these nine people have presumably been nominated by their their governments. But can people be nominated until the last second, or is it is there a deadline? Well, historically, these decisions have sometimes taken place in December, back in the Cold War, uh, when it was extremely difficult to get agreement on individuals. The process would run very late, but there is a general sense now that. The, the decision should be made in September or October. We, we know that there are a couple of serious candidates waiting in the wings. There's former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. Um, there's a well-respected ex-UN official, Susanna Malcora, who's now the Foreign Minister of Argentina, who has very good relations with the US. They're both expected to jump in at some point. We imagine that a few of the Eastern European candidates having enjoyed their moment in the sun will now fade out. I think that, uh, for example, Igor Luxich (laughs) from Montenegro, who was the very first uh, candidate to speak, didn't really grasp anyone's imagination. He and a couple of others are not going to leave the race immediately, but they are going to fade into the background and other big figures like Rudd are going to become more prominent. The Americans are particularly keen, I think, to see more non-European candidates in the race because of these underlying concerns about uh, relations with Russia. Equally, I think Russia is going to stand up pretty firmly and say, no, we still think this is Eastern Europeans' uh, turn. Um, candidates like Rudd should, uh, should stay away. And are we expecting there to be lots of people vetoed in order, as we, you know, just to clear the the, the way is it likely that the front runner will get vetoed by Washington or Moscow just to make a point at the beginning? I think that in general, the permanent five prefer not to uh, actually use the veto. They just they just like to threaten it. There's a certain degree of diplomatic politeness here. Everyone much prefers uh, for candidates to drop out of their own accord and with good grace rather than um, have a 
have a situation where where there's a, a straight veto. Equally, when it comes to uh, the autumn and when you actually have uh, the real voting in the Security Council, uh, then if relations with Russia have taken another turn for the worse at the UN, uh, which is always possible, then we could go to a Cold War-style veto game with uh the US, Britain and France blocking every candidate that Russia likes and and vice versa. Uh, This is at the moment a big public process, but I can see it narrowing down to a a really nasty political fight uh, in the next months. So if I can just add up on that, I guess it's the interesting thing with these uh, hearings. It's um, what does does it say about what is going to happen in the Security Council? My understanding is that uh, Russia and China didn't really say anything and, and kept their cards close uh, for the two days, and it probably will be the same today. Um, the other permanent members have more or less played the game and asked questions, but if you uh, look on, on the margins of that campaign, for instance, there was an, an article in the Daily Mail yesterday about the British being not so fond of Irina Bokova, who is currently considered as the frontrunner, as the uh, head of the DG, uh, Director General of the UNESCO, the uh, Culture and Education uh, Agency of the UN. So is this uh, a game that is a hint at disapproval, uh, trying to deter Bokova to push further? Or is this something of a game between... uh, the UK and maybe the US and Russia in terms of uh, who is going to push for which candidate and who is going to have some influence uh, over who is the, the frontrunner. Um, what is the biggest danger for the candidates involved? Is it to be too useless or to be too brilliant? Because the track record has not always been one of selecting the most uh, forceful and intellectually dominant candidates for Secretary General in the past. So here's the main question for me. Um, Is this going to be the year when a strong secretary general is selected or simply a strong sounding secretary general is elected, but one who uh, will do the bidding for the P5? So I think there's a lot of talk about you know, uh, countries, many countries wanting a strong secretary general, but whether the, the, the appointee is going to be independent of the Security Council of the P5 remains to be seen. We haven't heard really anything um, in these last three days of hearings that suggests that any of them are, um, you know, are ready to be particularly independent of um, of the all-powerful. That may or may not be a bad thing. So I've heard the argument that someone who is entirely independent uh, of the P5 may just run into too many conflicts with the Security Council and may not be able to get anything done. By the same token, there's a great um, interest, I think, by many countries, as well as civil society, for a secretary general who can, from time to time, stand up to them. So what's your sense, uh, Richard and Manuel, about what's going to happen this time around? My sense, as I say, is that this um, this current transparent process is useful and, and very nice. Uh, it has to be said that some of the candidates have gone out of their way to to answer difficult questions in 
in boring terms. That is because they are waiting for the, the more serious political game to start up in and around the Security Council uh, later in the year. I, I genuinely do not know who is going to win this race. Uh, there are always diplomats around the UN who believe that it's a stitch-up, that the Americans have already selected a candidate and that this is entirely for show. Uh, that thinking is influenced by what happened in 2006 when the Americans did very deliberately choose Ban Ki-moon in advance and then push him through uh, when the time was right. My my sense is that that is not the case this time, uh, that the Americans do not have a candidate they are going to impose on the UN, in part because they know that the Russians and Chinese are more likely to push back. So uh, it's, a, it's a genuinely confusing... Um, situation and a, a surprise winner could still pop out uh, who we aren't even talking about yet so can somebody uh, maybe speculate about some of these wild cards some of the things that people have been writing about in the press one's a bulgarian wild card kristalina georgieva who um uh has a lot of fans in the the european union but is not currently the nominee of the bulgarian government angela merkel's a, another name that was much in the german media towards the end of last year though the chancellery have been saying uh briefing that this would be uh, uh, almost an insult to the role of german chancellor to leave berlin for new york because the role is so irrelevant compared to running the, the most powerful country in europe but uh what kind of names were you thinking of I, I absolutely agree that um, uh, the idea of Merkel um, entering the race is a fantasy that a, a few UN nerds entertain, but has no basis in reality. If you've known real power in Berlin, why on earth would you want to have a symbolic position in New York? I think more seriously, Georgieva may re-enter the race. Georgieva has made it quite clear that she's interested in the job, but for the time being, Bulgaria has put its weight behind Irina Bakova. As I think Samini was suggesting, though, Bakova didn't perform stunningly uh, this week in New York. And it is possible that uh, she will be sidelined and the Bulgarians may bring Georgieva back in if they think that she's the stronger candidate or the candidate with the better chance of winning. And then there are other names that I think are more or less serious. Um, Michel Bachelet, the uh, Chilean president, has clearly been interested in the job in the past and might suddenly be drafted in as a compromise candidate. Uh, as I say, Kevin, Kevin Rudd is, is already there. But um, no, I will say now that if Angela Merkel becomes the next Secretary General, um, I will become the next Pope. So, Manuel, do you have anything to add to what Richard said? Yeah, I think he's right in, in the fact that Georgieva may try to re-enter the race, especially Bukova uh, drops uh, and, and there are reasons to believe that at least the UK, maybe the US, have some strong reservation on Bokova, not just because she's uh, said to be uh, supported by Moscow, but also because um, they have some questions about uh, her management of uh, UNESCO. Uh, or maybe they have some question about her management in UNESCO because that they are looking at her as a supported by uh, Moscow. So maybe Georgieva will actually come back and you were right in saying that she has a lot of fans, uh, especially in Europe, and that's very much the case in France, for instance. But the, the likely reaction of Russia will then be, well, you censored my candidate, I will censor your candidate. 
which probably is the reason why in the first place Georgieva said, uh, backed off and said, basically left the way open for Bokova to be the official Bulgarian candidate. Uh, and it, it may, be, may turn into a very much deadlock race about all those Eastern uh, European candidates, which will then probably reopen the race. Uh, uh, and some may think that that is already what the US have been thinking of and give either way for a Western uh, candidate, and that could be Guterres, that could be Clark, that could be uh, Kevin Rudd, even though I'm less sure about uh, his uh, chances. That could also be someone from the South. Um, and there is still this very the strong... Ah, the South. Okay, yeah, yeah. The Global South, or the South of Europe. The South of the Balkans, maybe. maybe. The South... <laughs> does not include in its UN uh, sense, does not include Australia or New Zealand, which would uh, disqualify Helen Clark and Kevin Rudd. And that would leave probably Susanna Malcora, the Argentinian, or maybe Michelle Bachelet, as Richard said, as a strong candidate. And there's, there's something about the balance of power, the global balance of power, which is also at stake there. Um, there's probably some strong reluctance within the broader UN membership about about having Europeans holding to key positions again, or Western, Westerners holding to key positions again in the UN. And actually, that's, that's maybe an interesting point. Uh, what is at stake for Europe? Europe is probably the one actor that has the most to lose with a bad outcome of that race. Because Europeans are the one who invest the most, and that's not just money, that's, there's also a lot of... Uh, other resources, um, including political capital. Uh, it's also institutions, the UN institutions are institutions where Europeans have a lot of influence and traction, and you don't know what would be the alternative. The alternative might be something where there's less cooperation, which is less rules-based, and the Europeans are, of course, much better off in a world where there is more cooperation rather than less and more rules-based uh, order rather than less. And so it's important for Europeans to, to get the right uh, profile. And there's always this joke that um, you don't want uh, a general, you want a secretary at the head of uh, the UN, if you are, for instance, one of the P5 members. Or the other way, if you are from the South, you'd rather have a general and not a secretary to um, confront the P5 when needed, actually, I would say you probably even more now when there's a kind of comeback of big power politics in the UN, you probably need someone who is able to take initiative, not be independent, as so many said, but be autonomous and who can facilitate cooperation between those big powers when they are confronting one to another. And we see many topics, not just security, crisis, many topics where those big powers are confronting one another these days. So, Richard, do you, apart from like whether they're powerful or not, what else is at stake for Europeans? Do any of these candidates have any ideas which uh, Europeans will either find extremely attractive or utterly obnoxious? Well, the bulk of European diplomats in New York are basically focused on financial issues at the moment. Uh, the, the UN budget is at record highs in, in many ways. The 
peacekeeping operations cost eight billion dollars a year humanitarian operations may cost up to 20 billion dollars a year and a lot of european diplomats are very frank about the fact that their their main role in life is trying to keep the costs down so i think that they will be looking uh, very hard to see which of the candidates is going to be the most austere uh, in in running the organization equally uh, african asian uh, diplomats view the Europeans' austerity with a bit of disdain in New York and will be urging uh, urging potential candidates to promise that they will splurge on on aid. Um, the other issue which, which Manuel is very coy about is um, the, the French language issue. Um, Paris absolutely insists that whoever becomes Secretary General should speak some French. Um, for 10 years, we've had to put up with Ban Ki-moon, um, who speaks a form of French unknown to any member of uh, the Francophonie. It's, it's the most remarkable version of French you can imagine. It's quite good, actually. I heard him um, speak French in a, a, a seminar in New York a few years ago. And I, was, I was quite surprised. It's not, it's, you know, compared to, I'll get in trouble for this, but, you know, listening to Swiss people or Canadians speaking French, it's much less of a crime against the, the language of Molière, I think. Than, um... Well, yeah, that, that is true. I'm not sure if we could have a Quebecois <laughs> Secretary General for that reason. Um, but no, silly as it may sound, um, Paris will will absolutely insist that whoever gets the job um, at least has a stab at speaking the language of Molière. And um, that tells you about some of the, the sort of diplomatic oddities around this race. Okay, maybe um, last kind of question to both of, uh, well, to, to, to the two Europeans, I think, because uh, obviously uh, this is a European choice to make. Who's your prediction about who will, will be the next candidate? Oh, Manuel, why don't you go first? Okay, so I would say the race will be between uh, Bokova, Guterres, Clark and Malcora. And if I had to bet, I would probably bet for Malcora. And I'm sorry I didn't answer that question in French, uh, but I should have. Richard, what about you? I think those those four will all be uh, in, the final, in the final fight, unless Bokova's problems start to way down her candidacy, candidacy um, for the reasons we've described. No, but as I say, I, um, I feel like a very bad pundit. Right now, I, I genuinely don't know who is going to win this job. All one can say is that it will be a miraculous figure who both President Obama and President Putin can approve of. And we just don't know who that is yet. Okay, well, we'll have to hold our breaths and wait until 31st of December of this year to find out who it actually is. But in the meantime... We will be posting links to many of the wise things that uh, Samini and Richard and uh, Manuel have written on this topic at our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you have enjoyed this podcast and are a fan of the world in 30 minutes, please give us a review or a rating on iTunes, on SoundCloud or on MixCloud. And you can always send us comments directly. My email address is mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Samini Semgupta, Richard Gowan and Manuel Lafont-Louis, it's goodbye. The editor of ECFR's podcast is Katerina Botel-Atinaro and our researcher is Ulrike Franke. <laughs>